Welcome back, everyone, to the Horror Shed Podcast. I'm your gorgeous co-host, Jared. Down beneath, underneath here, we have the one, the only, South Jersey Jason. What's going on? What is up, man? Not much. You know, I'm, like, getting excited. I'm eight days away from my favorite time of the year, Friday the 13th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what is new with you? Man, I am just making videos out the ass. We have one dropping on the Haunts channel every day this week. Damn. Yeah, I watched the I've watched so far the video from Reaper's Revenge and let me tell you what a freaking great time that was. I uh, I'm glad I got to experience it and I'm you know the doing like the media tour and doing the daytime tour just to see all the hard work everyone goes that puts into that i mean it was incredible and like i was telling people like you gotta go you gotta go you gotta go you know it's you know i make my, my friend mickey the clown went i think she was there saturday night oh yeah you know? yeah she posted photos and it was her first time going too how the hell has it so, mickey been there yet well she was a haunt actress you know at the one haunt that she worked at and never had the time and she's not doing it anymore, you know, at the one haunt she was at. So, um, but yeah, I just couldn't get over just, I don't know how that, how that will, what haunt will top that. I mean, uh, Field of Screams is good in their own right, but there's something about Reapers that just, like, I mean, the only thing that would top it, in my opinion, would be obviously Universal Studios, but I no, mean. It wouldn't top it for me. Because, really? Yeah, I mean, you're waiting in line for two hours at every house. True. You're rushed through every house. You don't get yeah. to look at everything. So no. Yeah. And honestly, is it really haunting when you have an unlimited budget? True. True. Yeah. You. You got. Okay. You got me there. Okay. But uh, you know, my favorite part of it was most definitely the hayride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna go more in depth with that on this channel too for the next episode because we're gonna do your stuff for the 13th and mm -hmm. the 14th i'll be there for some of it mm -hmm. and uh yeah so have you watched anything yeah actually i binged uh the insidious franchise last week because the red door came out on blu-ray last week and uh i was so disappointed with the red door to to finish their story it was a major letdown for me and i don't blame um Wow, what's his name? Josh Patrick Josh? Wilson. Patrick Wilson. I don't blame him as a director. It, the script was just bad, you know. So that's not nice. Yeah, although you know, it, I think this was the first Insidious movie where they had a song at the for the end credits, huh. and I'm like, I'm like, this singing sounds familiar. Patrick Wilson. <laughs> wow, that's funny. Yeah, um, I mean the the. Uh, the red face demon makes his appearance again. And, you know, I just wish there was a little bit more of like the two ghost hunters. Okay. Like they should have brought them in from a lot more than what they did. I mean, they did, they did a discredit by not having them more. And Lynn Shay does make a cameo, but what I would like is if they just started doing more of just like, when her character Elise was still alive. Right. You know, and working with the two ghost hunters. Because, you know, I liked 
I liked part three where it was like a prequel three years later or three years before. And then the last key was, was good as well. Um, but yeah, the red door, I would say out of all the, the five movies, that's like the fifth. That's you know, like a, yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else? Well, I started watching, I, surprise, surprise, fell asleep. I, uh, on Sunday, I put in Night of the Demons. Okay. Yeah. And then actually on Tubi, there was a documentary, which I never even heard of. And I never even knew this. There was supposed to be a direct sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Hmm. And it was going to be a spinoff. And it was with Chop Top. Oh, that's cool. And it was called American Monster or something like that. So I started watching it last night, but fell asleep. Um and that's about it. What about you? Have you watched anything? Uh, oh, oh! I just saw that uh, the new Haunted Mansion's on Disney Plus. It is. I, they sneaked that on there because I was. Yeah. I was just. What was I on there for? I don't remember. But I saw it up there. Yeah, I'm gonna have to oh, check that out. My bunny said Red Door sucks. <laughs> oh man, I've been looking so forward to that movie. I know too. you were. Yeah, you were looking forward to it. Uh, I know I can wait till after Haunt season to check it out though. So that's good. Yeah, for, it'll probably be on a streaming platform by them. Even better. Yeah. yeah. Um, I watched Hubie Halloween. Ah, you know, I was just thinking about watching that like this weekend. I love that movie. That's a funny movie. It's um, like the. It's like it could be like an unintentional sequel to The Water Boy. It can. <laughs> then we watched Hocus Pocus because I never saw it. What? Um, you've never seen Hocus. Pocus? I didn't fucking miss anything either. <laughs> it's a total chick flick, you know, like. I picture women wearing Uggs and sipping their pumpkin spice coffee while watching it. And their flannels, yeah. And their flannels. And, and their pumpkin you... patch flannel, yeah. Yeah, but come on. Ice. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that brought back 93 heavily. Yeah. Although, yeah, and I always had a crush on the main actress. So Who I didn't? Her... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I watched so. Idle Hands. Um, okay. Okay. Then, um, what else? Uh, I finished Boardwalk Empire again, mm-hmm. and then I started the League. Oh, okay. With um, so fucking funny. I, uh, he's a, he's he's funny though. I I like him. Um, the League. Oh no, the League is about the fantasy. Yeah, the fantasy football. football okay, I never, I never, I never saw. That oh, you're one, missing but... out. Even if you don't really? like football, that show is funny as okay. shit. I'll check it out. Um, tomorrow night I'm gonna go see The Exorcist. Oh yeah. And it's already getting shitty reviews. It is, but who gives a shit? I mean, I don't care. I don't even look anymore. I mean, it's everyone's, you know, I got, I talked to a lot of haunt odors this weekend and found a lot of funny shit out that I'll tell you about off air. Okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, Phillies, Phillies are red October, baby. That's all I got to say. They won last night. They're on the night at eight. They win. They move on. Can't wait. Um, so Ari Lehman stopped by unannounced at the Blairstown Diner the other night. Did you see that? I did it. Oh yeah, uh, it was um, what's that? A Wednesday, Monday night, I believe. He uh, Troy hopped in. in. <laughs> you, you clicked the button, bro. I mean, I don't know how to. <laughs> yeah. So um, his his band and uh him were on their way. They're actually in Vermont, but I think they had a gig in Vermont and then are heading back to Massachusetts for a gig. But um, they were in Maryland. 
at the fright oh. they i think they had something to do with the fright reads convention or something okay uh well so he was on live today and he said he was in vermont so i guess he's doing a show but then coming back to massachusetts but yeah so wherever they were coming from they passed through uh blairstown and had coffee at the diner and uh he spoke with the manager and maybe we'll see him uh next september oh very right. cool um speaking of which by the time this airs on the podcast on their regular scheduled day unless you're listening to it spirit halloween will um officially uh release their itinerary for friday the 13th so um be on the lookout for that if you're watching it now they're going to be there pretty much from like 10 to probably six or seven you know the one thing sucks i do know they're going to have media there but they're coming after i'm there which sucks you know but hey whatever um it's all good in the hood uh so i i can't say what's going on because i you know sworn to secrecy as far as what they're doing during the day but um it's gonna be a lot of fun for the, the fans i'm gearing up man i'm wondering when brian's gonna release the video come on i know <laughs> text his ass but like yo man you're not repping me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was thinking about sending him a message I, I figured he would probably do it like by friday or something at least i haven't even bothered texting him I, I know what he's going through right now yeah so. yeah but yeah i'm getting i'm getting excited man i got six or six wedding or six uh couples that i'm renewing their vows Sweet. um we're gonna have an appearance by crazy ralph as the crazy witness oh very so, cool and then um dave brown is debuting his old man Leatherface. he's gonna wear down there his costume looks sick very cool so. Yeah, so that's pretty much what's going on. Um, got a photo shoot this Sunday with our friend Ashley, and uh, she's actually doing a podcast of her own on her Twitch channel. Saw that. Yeah, she started with the Menendez brothers, and now she's uh, tonight. She's doing Slenderman. Slenderman. So I might uh, check in and see what how she does. Yeah, she stopped doing the gaming Twitch and is focusing on the podcasting aspect, which I think is cool. You yeah. know another thing to listen to uh anything else on your end um another busy weekend where are you going to this weekend we are hitting lincoln mill haunted house then the conover killings then markoff's haunted forest and then lehigh valley screen park god darn (laughs) yeah i wanted i wanted to go out with you on sunday to lehigh valley since it's like 15 minutes from my house but i'm doing the photo shoot like a little after four so i don't think i'll be back in time i gotcha yeah we're gonna get there around seven probably yeah yeah i'll probably finishing up probably around then and then yeah it wouldn't make sense i gotta go see this fucking dj there i mean oh yeah i hear that dj (laughs) troy says philly's postseason hurts haunt season it does but doesn't stop me right right and i i've suffered through 41 years of shitty Philly season. So guess what? <laughs> I'm cool with them making the playoffs. And they're going to go deep because it's haunt season and it's going to be like last year. There you go. There you go. Um hey, did you hear uh you know, we continue to hear um uh Taylor Swift and Kelsey if you forgot about it, you know. Nope, don't <laughs> care. Still, um at least it's kind of slowing down now, but the next thing I'm hearing now this is not Taylor Swift related, but Friday the 13th related. Blumhouse wants to get the franchise to um, Friday the 13th. I'm like, do you really want to kill another franchise? Like, right, do well, they do. do. You want to have a monopoly on all the franchises? That's a bad group to have it. 
Yeah. Um, and then I don't know how true this is. I saw it late last night. I didn't get a chance to really investigate today, but someone shared uh, Nicholas Cage made a post that he. Yeah, I couldn't right tell if that him. was real or not. Yeah, I was like, no, no. <laughs> is he out of tax debt? Because that didn't come cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I know they are shopping around for a TV series based on Season of the Witch, which I think would be pretty cool. That's like cool. Limit, I still got to watch series. that movie. You haven't watched that, you son of a bitch. You need to watch it like soon. Like when you're on the road next, please watch it. It's it could be like its own franchise because you know it's not nothing to do with Michael Myers, but it's got such a cool premise to it. And um, there is actually a fan film that I backed called The Third Channel, and it's supposed to be a, it's a follow up to the events. Hmm. So I would love. Uh, hopefully, it's coming out soon. Oh, but, but yeah. Before we move on, uh, Troy says, Brian, get your butt to the haunt. Okay. Well, I, know. I would love to go out. Maybe I'll just go out by myself. Well, you know what? I don't got anything going on Saturday. It's supposed to rain. so. Uh, but uh, we got to field test the equipment finally. Yeah, that. and it, it came out great. How fucking much better did that look? It, yeah, it sounded. It looked better, sounded a hell of a lot better. And I know it got you stoked for our um, oh, next yeah. filming I'm location. I'm so excited now. I just want to hit the ground running with a bunch of them. Oh, so I got some exciting news. Um, Chris and Greg, remember them from I Heart Horror? Yes. I uh, spoke with them for about an hour last night. And they're you know promoting part two, which is going to be in February. Same place. Uh, we're going to be raising money for Deborah Hart and Long. And uh, they're going to put me on the poster. Oh, cool. Um, because, because the they they asked if uh, I would want that because, you know, they, they considered me part of their little family and, you know, um, which I thought was like awesome. So the poster right now is like Sackhead Jason and it says like I heart heart part two and the heart is like in the eye socket of second oh that's cool and they're gonna put like featuring south jersey jason and i said well because at first they asked me um <laughs> at first they asked me if uh i could wear my nes costume but then i said you know if you're have sackhead on the poster i'll get my costume guy to do the part two for me it's like eat real quick costume yeah. to put together so um yeah, so I'm going to be doing that. It's um, scheduled for February 10th in Sayreville, and they they invited us, you and me, to come out in January to do filming location for Charles Adams' house, so they can give us a tour of the, the creator of the Adams family. Uh-huh. So they would like for us to come out for that. Okay. And then um, I had talked to him about the the shark attacks of Matawan. Yeah. And he's going to talk to the guy that does the tour to give us a tour and put it for our page oh sweet yeah so we'll do that like next spring or summer or something yeah so it'd be cool to see that bridge that has the shark oh yeah 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 Yeah, uh my bunny i totally agree with you Mm -hmm. he's all right um you know i got a really nice compliment from a friend uh he commented on my my um picture of my new cosplay ghost jason and he says it looks better than the actual fan film and i'm like that's a great compliment, but I wouldn't go that far. I would say it's right up there, you know? Oh. So I got a lot of great feedback from that costume. So I'm, I'm anxious oh, to do Before we move on with the uh-huh. subject tonight, Friday the 13th, 
if you're a fan, head to Valley of Fear in Trevos, Pennsylvania, because there's a whole Camp Blood scene, and it's out fucking standing. Yeah, there was a couple of Jasons there, right? You there said? was more than a couple. Okay, and there was a uh, sleeping bag. There was kill. a sleeping bag in- incident, yes. Nice, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, well, okay. I, I think I'm all caught up, yeah. Okay, so um, there is so much to talk about Friday the 13th. I would talk hours and hours. So Now, I let's some... start somewhere before we hop into this uh, crazy amount of information we have here. Okay. Where the hell did the Friday the 13th start for you? It, you know, I, it was, I was young. I want to say six or seven when you only had a few amount of channels and the one channel that we got was wpix out of new york and every october they would play shocktober and they would do maybe a franchise for the week and that's where i became first introduced to friday the 13th and i remember watching it and I, you know, I really didn't really pay attention to all the details. It wasn't until I was a little older when I was watching it, the first one. And on Enos's truck, it said, I forget the name of the town, maybe Columbia, New Jersey or something, New Jersey. I'm like, what? It was filmed in New Jersey. And then I watched the credits and um, it said Blairstown, New Jersey. So, I, you know, I looked up on a road atlas because that's what you use back then. <laughs> and I saw where Blairstown was and... Uh, it wasn't actually until 2010 when I was camping up in Sussex County, I was Googling Blairstown to see how far away it was from where I was. It was only half an hour. So, and it's actually, it's funny because on my memories, it came up 13 years ago, I was camping at Harmony Ridge Campgrounds and visited Blairstown for the first time. And Main Street, which has the arches, Back then, there was there was a lot of shuttered businesses, so it looked pretty much like it did in 1979 when they were making the movie. And then I didn't return to Blairstown until 2019. Gotcha. So yeah, so that's when it started for me. So Very you saw age. the original first. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. For me, I saw four first. Oh, that's that a, was, well, that's still a great movie. Oh, without a doubt, that was the um, that was the. Uh, <laughs> That was the first one I saw because my uncle taped Nightmare 1 and 2, and then I had Friday 4. Okay, okay, nice. That's such a great movie. It was so, like, part three, you know, obviously is iconic as he gets to Hawk, and um, Richard Brooker did such a great job because, you know, he was very menacing. But Ted White took it up a notch, you know, in part four. And, you know, he is to this date, the oldest person to play Jason. He was 58 years old. Damn. His last movie he did as a stunt actor was the fast and the furious. The first one, he was a driver <laughs> and he was, he was 80. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, God rest his soul. But yeah, for such a great movie, man, like, it is. I, you know, when I first watched it, I was truly scared because of just how he was like when he came first crashing through the window and grabbed Corey Feldman and then he broke the door open and threw the hammer at Trish. I was like, damn, man, you know, and then I think it was a little repetitive when Tommy was just like 
chopping him a lot and going yeah a little 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 too much at the end but yeah he did his little haircut and everything and then they left it like open-ended like now it's tommy possessed and that's the route they were going to go but you know i'm glad they didn't go that route took a little u-turn there all right let's play the trailer before we hop into this Friday the 13th. Mm, such a uh, classic trailer. I love trailers like that. I wish they. I wish that the... guy who does the voiceovers for oh, all of the them boys, yes. would live forever because he, he was so badass. That's when trailers were great. Uh-huh. It, you know, his voice. He's like, he's like. The, the, the movie trailer guy is like just as famous as like Peter Collin, who does Optimus Prime. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but we all want uh, Peter Cullen to live forever. So let's welcome BJ Crowder from Virginia, first time watcher. Oh, welcome. Uh, he is Friday 13th is his shit. Uh, he's got some great autographs from people that you would never expect. Like he's got the autograph from Ron Milky stunt motorcycle driver. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, um, he's going to be coming up. 
on the 12th, he's staying overnight at Camp Crystal Lake, and then he'll be at the diner during a day. And, uh, you know, so he listens to, he's an avid listener. Uh, he listens like when on his way to work or whatnot. He's a, you know, it's funny because he's a pastor. He's a principal during the week and then the pastor. And then he's a big Friday 13th fan. <laughs> so welcome, BJ. Um, all right. So there is so much information with Friday the 13th. I would be here all night talking about it. So I kind of had to just put in the meat and potatoes and I left out like the dessert, you know, like we normally will do trivia and stuff, but I might, you know, throw in some things here and there, but let's get started with the review of Friday the 13th. All right. So Friday the 13th is a 1980 American independent slasher film produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Written by Victor Miller and starring Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Lori Bartram, Mark Nelson, Janine Taylor, Robbie Morgan, and Kevin Bacon. Its plot follows a group of teenage camp counselors who are murdered one by one by an unknown killer while they are attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp with a tragic past. Oh, let me get my mouse here. All right. So prompted by the success of John Carpenter's Halloween, director Cunningham put out an advertisement to sell the film in Variety in early 1979 while Miller was still drafting the screenplay. After casting the film in New York City, filming took place in New Jersey in the summer of 1979 on an estimated budget of $550,000. A bidding war ensued over the finished film, ending with Paramount Pictures acquiring a film for domestic distribution while Warner Brothers secured international distribution rights. Huh. Released, released on May 9th, 1980, Friday the 13th was a major box office success grossing $59.8 million worldwide. Critical response was divided, with some praising the film's cinematography and score, while numerous others derided it for its depiction of graphic violence. Aside from being the first independent film of its kind to secure distribution in the U.S. by a major U.S. studio, its box office success led to a long series of sequels, a crossover with the Nightmare on Elm Street film series, mm -hmm. and a 2009 series reboot. So uh, is it a series in. reboot because there was no nah, more after that? So I'm just would... calling it like a reimagining of the original. Yeah, that's how I would say. I mean, that's it did I have Easter say. eggs from the other movies, but there wasn't any more. So you can't call it a series reboot. Yeah, correct. And, you know, when I, I was so pumped when I saw that in the movie theater and I wish we got one more with Derek Mears because that was the first movie in a while that made my blood pressure go up. That music when he's running, uh -huh. like I was getting warm inside. You know, I was I. It it got panned by the fans, but I liked it because it had some. The opening egg. twenty minutes Dude, were enough yeah. to like Jason's <laughs> fucking moving. He's running. Yeah, he's beat. Like holy shit! And then like you see the wheelchair down there, homage to four. Or I mean, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. two. Yeah. And then um, there was some other shit in there that you notice from yeah. other movies. All right, so Friday the 13th was produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who had previously worked with filmmaker Wes Craven on the film The Last House on the Left. Cunningham, inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween, wanted Friday the 13th to be shocking, visually stunning, and make you jump out of your seat. Wanting to distance himself from The Last House on the Left, Cunningham wanted Friday the 13th to be more of a roller coaster ride. The original screenplay was tentatively called A Long Night at Camp Blood, while working on a redraft of the screenplay cunningham proposed the title friday the 13th after which miller began redeveloping 
Cunningham rushed out to place an advertisement in Variety using the, the Friday 13th title. Worried that someone else owned the rights to the title and wanting to avoid potential lawsuits, Cunningham thought it would be best to find out immediately. He commissioned a New York advertising agency to develop his concept of the Friday 13th logo, which consisted of a big block letters bursting through a pane glass. In the end, Cunningham believed there were no problems with the title, but distributor George Mansour stated, There was a movie before ours called Friday the 13th, The Orphan. It was moderately successful, but someone still threatened to sue. Either Phil Scuderi paid them off, but it was finally resolved. The screenplay was completed in mid-1979 by Victor Miller, who later went on to write for several soap operas, including Guiding Light, One Life to Live, and All My Children. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the time, Miller was living in Stratford, Connecticut, near Cunningham, and the two had begun collaborating on potential film projects. Miller delighted in inventing the serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for her child. I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Miller was unhappy about the filmmaker's decision to make Jason Voorhees the killer in the sequels. Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not, not a villain. The idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was initially not used in the original script. In Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake. Jason's appearance... I'm sorry, pulling this up. Jason's appearance was actually suggested by makeup designer Tom Savini. Savini stated that the whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was I had just seen Carrie, so we thought that we need a chair jumper like that, and I said, let's bring in Jason, which, you know, was an awesome scene. Yeah, you know, like I loved that end where she wakes up on the on the canoe and just um Harry Manfredini's score, it's a lovely, very um, just uh, a soft tempo. And, you know, the police, you know, you see the police come in and Alice is waking up and she's like putting her hand in the water. And then all of a sudden we have young 12 year old Jason jumping out of the water, you know, grabbing her by her, you know, her top of her under her neck and pulling her back in. Was it a dream? Did it really happen? You know, who's to know? Um, you know, the cop said, uh, Officer Tierney said, the boy, we didn't find any boy. Then he's still there. You know, and then it comes back to that great music again of just a shot of the lake. I love that uh, melody right there. All right. Um, so casting, a New York-based film headed by Julia Hughes and Barry Moss was hired to find eight young actors to play the camp staff members. Cunningham admits that he was not looking for great actors, but anyone that was likable and appeared to be a responsible camp counselor. The way Cunningham saw it, the actors would need to look good, read the dialogue somewhat well, and work cheap. Mawson Hughes were happy to find four actors, Kevin Bacon, Lori Bartram, Peter Brower, and Adrian King, who had previously appeared on soap operas. The role of Alice Hardy was set up as an open casting call, a publicity stunt used to attract more attention to the film. The producers originally wanted Sally Field for the role of Alice, but realized that they could not afford an established high-profile actress and went for unknown, act unknown uh, actors instead, which that's a great way to go. Well, one, you can't afford it, but you know, if you make any movie today... And it's either a horror movie or, you know, well, sp specifically a horror movie and Brad Pitt's casting it. You know, Brad Pitt's not going to die. Yeah. You know? So it's it's smart how they did that. Um, 
So according to Adrian King, originally the producers were looking really hard for a name actress to play Alice. They finally realized that even if they could find somebody like that who was willing to do it, they wouldn't be able to afford her. So they decided to go with Newtown instead. King earned an audition primarily because she was the friend of someone working in Moss and Hughes' office, and Cunningham felt she embodied the qualities of Alice. After she auditioned, Moss recalls Cunningham commenting that they saved the best actress for last. As Cunningham explains, he was looking for people that could behave naturally, and King was able to show that to him in the audition. With King casting the role of lead heroine Alice, Lori Bartram was hired to play Brenda. Kevin Bacon, Mark Nelson, and Janine Taylor, who had known each other prior to the film, were cast as Jack, Ned, and Marcy, respectfully. It is Bacon and Nelson's contention that because the three already knew each other, they already had the specific chemistry the casting director was looking for in the roles of Jack, Ned, and Marcy. Taylor has stated that Hughes and Moss were highly regarded while she was an actress, so when they offered her an audition, she felt that whatever the part, it would be good opportunity. Friday 13th was Nelson's first feature film, and when he went in for his first audition, the only thing he was given to read were some comedic scenes. Nelson received a call back for a second audition, which required him to wear a bathing suit, which Nelson acknowledges made him start to wonder if something was off about this film. He did not fully realize what was going on until he got the part and was given the full script to read. Nelson explains, it certainly was not a straight dramatic role, and it was only after they offered me the part that they gave me the full script to read, and I realized how much blood was in it. Nelson believes that Ned used humor to hide his insecurities, especially around Brenda, whom the actor believes Ned was attracted to. And I don't blame Ned. Out of all the cast members in the first one, I thought Lori Bartram was like the, 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 the hottest to me. You know, she just was very simple girl next door, very beautiful woman. And unfortunately we lost her way too soon to cancer. And, um, you know, she never got to be on the convention scene. Uh, so um, Nelson recalls an early draft of the script stating that Ned suffered from polio and his legs were deformed while his upper body was muscular. Ned is believed to have given birth to the practical Joker victim of horror films. According to author David Grove, there was no equivalent character in John Carpenter's Halloween or Bob Clark's Black Christmas before that. He served as a model for the slasher films that would follow Friday the 13th. The part of Bill was given to Harry Crosby, son of Bing Crosby. Robbie Morgan, who played Annie, was not auditioning for the film when she was offered the role while in her office. Hughes looked at Morgan and proclaimed, you're a camp counselor. The next day, Morgan was on the set. Morgan only appeared on set for a day to shoot all of her scenes. So her character, like you thought she was the going to be the final girl. But they threw in a Alfred Hitchcock, um, you know, Freudian, like how they did with uh, Janet Lee in Psycho. You know, she was... So thought to be the main actress and she's killed off within the first half an hour uh so rex everhart who portrayed enos did not film the truck scenes with morgan so she had to either act with an imaginary enos or exchange dialogue with tazo stravicus savini's assistant who would sit in the truck with her it was peter brower's girlfriend that helped him land a role on friday the 13th after recently being written off the show love of life brower moved back to connecticut to look for work Learning that his girlfriend was working as an assistant director for Friday the 13th, Brower asked about any openings. Initially told casting was looking for big stars to fill the role of Steve Christie. It was not until Sean Cunningham dropped by to deliver a message to Brower's girlfriend and saw him working in the garden that Brower was hired. Estelle Parsons, you know who that is? No. Estelle Parsons um, 
I first was introduced to her in um, uh, the Poseidon Adventure. She uh, was like the older woman who was like, if you ever saw that Gene Hackman, she was the one that went underwater and, you know, was a good swimmer. But people when more in our age would remember her as Roseanne's Nana from, you know, from the TV show Roseanne. Do you remember oh, that yeah, character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was initially asked to portray the film's killer, Mrs. Voorhees, hmm. but the, but declined with her agent citing that the film was too violent and did not know what kind of actress would play such a part. Shelley Winters, oh no, I'm sorry, not Estelle Parsons. I'm totally wrong. Um, Shelley Winters was Nana on Roseanne. Um, Estelle Parsons, I know the name, I just can't place her. So Shelley Winters was also offered the role, but turned it down. Hughes and Moss sent a copy of the script to Betsy Palmer in hopes that she would accept the part. Have you ever seen um, pictures of Betsy Palmer, like in her younger years? Yeah. Was she attractive? Uh-huh. You know, such a beautiful woman. Um, all right. So uh, Palmer could not understand why someone would want her for a part in a horror film as she had previously starred in films such as Mr. Roberts, The Angry Man, and The Tin Star. Palmer only agreed to play the role because she needed to buy a new car, even when she believed the film to be a piece of shit. <laughs> and that's why she was so late to the convention scene, too. Like, she didn't get into it until the early 2000s. And she was so, like, amazed of, like, the fans and how much they love not only the franchise, but Mrs. Voorhees. Uh, Stavrakis subbed for Betsy Palmer as well, which which involved Morgan's character being chased through the woods by Mrs. Voorhees, although the audience only sees a pair of legs running after Morgan. Palmer had just arrived in town when those scenes were about to be filmed and was not in the physical shape necessary to chase Morgan around the woods. Morgan's training as an acrobat assisted her in these scenes as her character was required to leap out of a moving jeep when she discovers that Mrs. Voorhees does not intend to take her to camp. Bessie Palmer explains how she developed the character of Mrs. Voorhees. Being an actress who uses the st- Stains Lavasky method, I always try to find details about my character. With Pamela, I began with a class ring that I remember reading in the script that she'd worn. Starting with that, I traced Pamela back to my own high school days in the early 1940s. So it's 1944, a very conservative time, and Pamela has a steady boyfriend. They have sex, which is very bad, of course, and Pamela soon gets pregnant with Jason. The father takes off, and when Pamela tells her parents they disown her because having babies out of wedlock isn't something that good girls do. I think she took Jason and raised him the best she could, but he turned out to be a very strange boy. She took lots of odd jobs, and one of those jobs was a cook at a summer camp. Then Jason drowns, and her whole world collapses. What were the counselors doing? Instead of watching Jason, they were having sex, which is the way she got into trouble. From that point on, Pamela became very psychotic and, and oh, this is a big word, uh, Purentical in her attitudes as she was determined to kill all of the immoral camp counselors. Cunningham wanted to make the Mrs. Voorhees character terrifying and to that and he believed it was important that Palmer not act over the top. There was also the fear that Palmer's past credits as more of a wholesome character would make it difficult to believe she could be scary. Palmer was paid $1,000 per day for her 10 days on set. Ari Lehman, who had previously auditioned for Cunningham's Manny's Orphans, failing to get the part, was determined to land the role of Jason Voorhees. According to Lehman, he went in very intense and afterward, Cunningham told him he was perfect for the part. In addition to the main cast, Walt Warning came on as Crazy Ralph, the town soothsayer. It's got a death curse. 
going camp blood, ain't ya? The character of Crazy Ralph was meant to establish two functions, foreshadow the events to come and insinuate that he could actually be the murderer. Cunningham has stated that he was apprehensive about including the character and is not sure if he accomplished his goal of creating a, a new suspect. And this is what always bugged me about Friday 13th Part 2. He tells them not to go to camp. What does he do? He goes to camp. And not only the first one, and the second one. How does he die? By being a damn peeping Tom. Okay? So if Crazy Ralph just listened to his um, own advice, he would probably be still, well, he wouldn't be alive, but he would live to tell another tale. That's true. All right. So filming. Now, you know all too well where the filming locations were. We will have the a film- link in this video. Nice. Um, the film was shot in and around the townships of Hardwick, Blairstown, and Hope in Warren County, New Jersey in September 1979. The camp scenes were shot on a working Boy Scout camp, Camp Novi Bosco, which is located in Hardwick. The camp is still standing and still operates as a summer camp. The cinematography in the film employs recurrent point of view shots from the perspective of the villain. Now, BJ, who is watching, he's going to camp next Thursday and he's spending a night over there because they're doing the tour Friday 13th weekend. Um, and funny, here's a little trivia for you. The Camp Nobby Bosco wasn't the original camp that they were going to film at. When they were going back to get things ready, they got lost and stumbled upon Camp Nobby Bosco. And uh, they're like, whoa, this is actually better than the original camp because it's more shittier looking than the original one. So it, it worked out well. And man, let me tell you, if I won the lottery, I would give a blank check to the Boy Scouts and say, how much do you want? And then I would turn it to into like what Camp Daniel Morgan does in Atlanta, you know, and they let you stay there for pennies on the dollar, basically, compared to what Crystal Lake Tour does or turn it like into an Airbnb type thing. You know, the money you could make from that. And I would restore to how it looked in um you know, 1979. Uh, so we got Tom Savini was hired to design the film special effects based upon his work in George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Savini's contributions included crafting the effects of Marcy's axe wound to the face, the arrow penetrating Jack's throat, and Mrs. Voorhees' decapitation of the machete. During the filming of the fight sequence between King and Palmer's characters, Palmer suggested rehearsing the scene based on her theater training. I said to Adrian at night, why don't we rehearse the scene? I have to slap you. Because on stage, when you slap somebody, you slap them. While rehearsing, Palmer slapped King in the face and she began crying. She collapsed to the floor crying, Sean, she hit me. I said, well, of course I hit her. We were rehearsing the scene, he said. No, 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 Betsy, we don't hit people in movies. We miss them. All right, so we're going to get talking about Harry Man and Franditi and the music. He scored all the movies with the exception of part eight. And I think that was it. I forget which ones if he didn't do any other ones. When Harry Manfredini began working on the musical score, the decision was made to only play music when the killer was actually present so as to not manipulate the audience. Manfredini pointed out the lack of music for certain scenes. There's a scene where one of the girls is setting up the archery area. One of the guys shoots an arrow into the target and just misses her. It's a huge scare, but if you notice, there's no music. That was a choice. Manfredini also noted that when something was going to happen, the music would cut off so that the audience would relax a bit and the scare would be that much more effective. 
Because the killer, Mrs. Voorhees, appears on screen only during the final scenes of the film, Manfredini had the job of creating a score that would represent the killer in her absence. Manfredini borrows from the 1975 film Jaws, where the shark is likewise not seen for the majority of the film, but the motif created by John Williams cued the audience to the shark's invisible menace. Sean S. Cunningham sought a chorus, but the budget would not allow it while listening to a Christoph Penedeckery piece of music, which contained a chorus with striking pronunciations. Manfredini was inspired to recreate a similar sound. He came up with the sound, but people for all the years thought it was. So you um, heard the stupid one where they thought it was an advertisement for Jiffy Pop? No. <laughs> Oh, brother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a little um, trivia. John Williams, you know, he's been um, nominated for over 50 Oscars. I believe it. That's yeah. insane. I wonder how many he's won. I'd have to look, but I know I, I was listening to a podcast with Spielberg, and he said he's been nominated for over 50 Oscars. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Um. All right, so to achieve the unique sound he wanted for the film, Manfredini spoke the two words harshly, distinctively, and rhythmically into a microphone and ran them into an echo reverb reverbation machine. Manfredini finished the original score after a couple of weeks and then recorded the score in a friend's basement. Victor Miller, an assistant editor, Jay Cooper, have commented on how memorable the music is, with Cooper describing it is iconographic. Manfredini says everybody thinks it's Cha-cha-cha. I'm like, cha-cha-cha? What are you talking about? In 1982, Grammy Vision Records released an LP record of selected pieces of Harry Manfredini's scores from the first three Friday 13th films. On January 13th, 2012, La La Land Records released a limited edition six CD box set containing Manfredini's scores from the first six films. It sold out in less than 24 hours, and they actually released it uh, a year or two ago, so I have the first eight on um cd and then if you've ever been to the hamilton mall the rock shop i found um the vinyl not the waxwork one with the blood but another one that has really cool artwork for 10 bucks so i actually had harry manfredini sign that last year i have three autographs by him a regular eight by ten i have the musical score and um the vinyl and when he autographs like his his eight by tens he'll put like part of the score in there oh, that's cool such a such a great guy to talk to too all right so we talked about some of the cast um i'll go over some other people so um uh let's see we had uh ron carroll as sargentini or tierney uh walt gorney as crazy ralph willie adams as barry unfortunately uh, he's no longer with us because shortly after Friday the 13th, he passed away in a car accident. He was the camp counselor in the beginning with Claudette. Uh, Deborah S. Hayes as Claudette. She actually, um, she actually, uh, came out, um, of the woodworks, uh, last year. My friend Stacy Lee, who is a booking agent of CMV Promotions, uh, she tracked her down. She's, I think she was living out in California. She had no idea about anything about Friday the 13th, uh, the, the conventions and stuff. So how do you actually, not know with social media? If you're off the grid, you know, like you don't are not on social media. Um, so she came, she did her first monster mania last year 
Um, and then she was at camp back in June when I was there. Um, and Stacy was kind enough to get me an autograph when she was at Monster Mania. Um, we have Sally Ann Golden as Sandy the Waitress and then Ari Lehman as Jason. So the only autographs out of like the really main characters that are eluding me um, are Harry Crosby, um, Lori Bartram, because obviously she passed away, Kevin Bacon, uh, Mark Nelson, and Peter Brower. Peter Brower, he, he like, he he's older he he just he he's never seen the reactions of the conventions he doesn't think well why would anyone come see me that dude would make so much money if he came out we want to get him at the diner in the worst possible way <laughs> i mean that would be like you know my my bucket list of the entire franchise all right so let's get into this plot in 1958, at Camp Crystal Lake, two counselors sneak inside a cabin to have sex, where an unseen assailant murders them. We have Barry and Claudette. Uh, they sneak away from singing Kumbaya, and, uh, you know, they're going to have premarital sex. And um, everyone, people always said, well, why did they die? Well, they're the ones that were responsible for Jason drowning. They weren't paying attention. So in present day, camp counselor and cook Annie Phillips is driven halfway to the reopen Camp Crystal Lake. So we open up, you know, she's walking through town and then, you know, she goes to the diner and she's like, excuse me, how far it is to Camp Crystal Lake? And like the record just like screeches, you know, and a little trivia. Uh, everyone in the in that scene were actors or extras, except for one guy. If you pan all the way to the left, there's an old man like eating cereal or whatever. He was actually a patron. He was like, I ain't fucking getting out of here. I pay for this meal. I want to eat. So he was actually a resident of the town. Um, so um, Enos, the driver, decides he'll 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 bring her halfway. And as they're driving, you know, he's like, uh, um, she's uh, talking about what she's going to be doing. And uh, she's always like working with kids. So he begins to tell her about the camp's trouble past beginning when the young boy drowned in Crystal Lake. And then um, the water went bad and then there was a fire. And obviously, as we come to find out at the end of the movie, it was caused by Mrs. Voorhees. So I'm going to say something. Uh, uh, Stacy's phone on Facebook. Yeah, Stacy's. Uh, we got Oracle six eight four. Thanks for chiming in. Stacy's a wonderful person. I've known her for a few years now, and uh, she's got CMD promotions, and she's got a great talent list. She has a lot of the Friday Thirteenth um, members, and because of her, I was able to get autographs through private signings when they uh, are if she's with them at a convention. Um, so after being dropped off. Uh, at the halfway point, Annie hitches another ride from an unseen person who eventually slashes her throat. Uh, you know, she's talking to the person and everything's all right. But then when she passes the entrance to Camp Crystal Lake, the music intensifies. And then she basically jumps out of the Jeep. She's pursued by this unknown uh, assailant and gets her, th her throat slashed. It looks great if you watch it in the original format. But if you watch it like in Blu-ray or up, you can totally see the prosthetics. At the camp, um, or prior to getting to the camp, we're introduced to Ned, Jack, Bill, and Marcy. Um, they're driving to um, Camp Crystal Lake. This is where we will also meet Brenda and Alice, along with owner Steve Christie. Um, they're refurbishing the cabins, and I got to tell you, man, 
if I had the body like Steve Christie, I'd wear some cutoff shorts too. And, you know, thermal socks with uh, work boots. Uh, that's my next cosplay when I drop about 40 pounds. Okay. Please don't. <laughs> so, um, so basically, uh, Steve's giving them a list of things to do. They have to go work on this. So, um, <clears throat> so then, you know, this is when we get to really kind of meet them a little, actually before that, Alice is, you know, doing work on the cabin. And I have to tell you, she's got very horrible hammering skills. Um, so Steve is like, I think he's a pervert because, because uh, you know, he likes her. Obviously, there's an age difference, I believe. And, uh, you know, she came from California to help him. How they know each other, we never got that established. But she's an artist. And uh, she basically did a uh, Jack from Titanic on him the previous night and, you know, drew him. And apparently there's some rift because she wants to go. And he's like, give me another week. You know, if you don't like it, I'll put you on the bus myself so he uh gets ready to go into town he's given him a list of things to do and so they're gonna just you know swim for a little bit and this is when we get the comical of um uh who is it um bill um he pretends to drown that's when we see kevin bacon's bacon bits you know and the little speedo he's wearing and uh, they go to rescue him. And as um, Brenda's uh, doing um, mouth to mouth, that's when he starts to kiss her. Um, and then shortly after that, we had the snake in the cabin. <clears throat> now, this is the one thing that's pretty shitty. They got this snake wrangler to bring in the snake who's his pet. That wasn't a fake snake they killed. That was a real snake. He didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> Obviously, um, the SPCA was not on set during this, but the Snake Wrangler was so upset. You know, like he did not realize you you just killed my pet snake. And then we're introduced to Officer Dorf. Officer now, this Dorf. Was, this was a character that wasn't in the original script. Uh, Cunningham wanted a little bit of comedic relief. And that's played by um, Ron Wilkie. Or Mil I'm sorry, Ron Wilkie. Ron Milkie. I apologize who has my handsome diner guy, six by six, hanging on his fridge. I'll let you know. Um, and he was like, looking at Officer Dorf, you would think he's like in his 40s, right? He was like 28. Like he, I mean, people that back then, I don't know what, the, they had hard lives, I don't know. But, you know, those crazy one-liners, <clears throat> I'm looking for a man that goes by the name Ralph, town drunk. Every time he uh, gets to call in, he spends a weekend in jail and, you know, I get Monday in, in um, at the court. Uh, what you been smoking, boy? The pot reefer, you know, whatever his little monologue is, you know. Um, but obviously the crazy, the best one liner is we ain't going to stand for no weirdness out here. So after he leaves, that's when um, they meet crazy Ralph. He's given his prophecy. Um, but then as the thunderstorm approaches, um uh, we get um, Jack and uh, Marcy walk in and she's telling this story of when it rained blood and, you know, Kevin Bacon, man, I don't know who gave him that line. Whoa, the wind shifted 120 degrees. It's going to storm down here like a mother, you know, like, oh, OK, you can tell it's 120 degrees. So they go into they, they go into a cabin or actually prior to that, uh, you know, Ned or Jack or Bill's by himself and he sees a mysterious figure going into the cabin. So he's going to go investigate. And then, you know, um, 
Jack and Marcy are going to go canoodle because that's what counselors did. And after a couple of minutes, he's smoking some grass and she's going to go to the bathroom. And then you get probably, in my opinion, the best kill of the movie when the arrow comes through his throat. And they actually had an issue with that effect because the way there was like a, a clog in the line. So that's why it sputters like that. But and then as they're having sex, we get the thunder lightning of uh, poor Bill that's uh, above them dead. All right. So um, let's see. Marcy leaves for the bathroom. Um, so Marcy's in the bathroom. The killer kills Marcy next with an axe. Now, a little trivia. That's not a real bathroom. It's actually a cabin and they put a facade in there. When I met Janine Taylor at camp, who played Marcy, like I didn't know she was going to be there. And that's when we found out like that was like the bathroom and everything. So it was really cool. But um, so back at the other cabin, we have we have uh, Brenda, Ned and Alice. They're going to um, play some strip monopoly and smoke some grass, as I like to call it. And uh, it's funny, like Brenda's character, she's like this goody goody and she wants to play strip monopoly. But in real life, um, Lori Bartram was like a Mormon, I believe. And that was like her one and only horror movie that she did because she didn't realize like what it really entailed, you know. Um, so after the door um, gets blown open by the wind, Monopoly money goes over, party's over. And then um, Brenda's like, oh, I think I left my window open. So she's going back to her cabin. She's getting ready for bed. And then she hears uh, a voice. Help me. Help me. You know, stuff like that. So she goes to investigate. She's out uh, in the archery range. And the lights come on. And then she's killed off screen. So we never know how she dies. Um, so a little time passes. Worried by their friend's disappearance. Alice and Bill investigate. Um they find an axe in Brenda's bed and the phone's disconnected. And when she finds the axe, she's like, what is going on? So uh, we flash to the Blairstown Diner and Steve's having his final meal. He's got uh, Sandy, the waitress, you know, uh, telling, he says, what do I owe you? Oh, just a night on the town, but it's a buck and a quarter. I'm like, damn, I want dinner and coffee for a buck and a quarter. <laughs> sure as hell can't even get a coffee for a buck and a quarter now. Hell no so another little um tidbit so because the producers didn't have a lot of money the jeep that steve christie drives and the jeep that mrs Voorhees drives are the same jeep so to kind of make it look like two different jeeps mrs Voorhees had the top up steve had the top down so there's a little trivia there for you um but it also kind of gave you like a red herring he you see yeah. his jeep in the, you know towards the beginning of the movie could he be the killer? All right. So um, so Steve is trying to go back to Camp Crystal Lake. His car breaks down. Uh, Officer Tierney sees him, picks him up. And, um, you know, they're driving. And Officer Tierney gets a call about something going on. So he Steve has to walk the rest of the way. He gets to where the sign is. And a light goes on. And he says, um, what are you doing out in this mess? And then... You know, so obviously he knew the killer. Um, when the power goes out, Bill goes to check on the generator. Alice finds his body pinned with arrows uh, to the door. Now, if you pause at just the right moment, you are going to see how mad Mrs. Voorhees is because he's got two arrows in the nuts. So, <laughs> so 
So when she sees that, she flees to the main cabin where Brenda's body is thrown through the window. A little trivia, that was Tom Zavini. Uh, Mrs. Voorhees, a middle-aged woman who claims to be a friend of Steve's, arrives. She reveals that her son Jason was a young boy who drowned in 1957, and she blames the death on neglect by the counselors because they were having sex instead of supervising. Jason should have been washed. He wasn't a very good swimmer. I just love, like, that was a great monologue by Mrs. Voorhees. You know, like, I, I just love it so much. Um, so obviously she's got some paranoid delusions and she blames any counselor that works there. You know, you didn't have to be working there at the time. You could be in 1979 and you're, you're still, you know, blamed for it. So uh, revealing herself as the killer, she attempts to kill Alice. Let's go, child. It'll be easier this way. At the, at the, uh, so they have a little bit of struggle, you know, um, she, Alice hides in like the pantry and then whaps Mrs. Voorhees on the head with uh, the skillet. And then um, she finds the gun, but obviously the bullets are locked up and then they have a little bit of a slap fight again. And then we get to the main finale. We're at the shore. They struggle until Alice is able to decapitate her. And that's such a great slow motion Chops off the head, but what do we see? Toothpicks coming out of the, <laughs> the neck that was on it. And then Harry Knuckles. <laughs> Harry obviously, Knuckles. Obviously, it wasn't Betsy Palmer, and she always joked about that. Um, so again, um, so Alice, you know, she's exhausted. She uh gets in a canoe and passes out. And as I mentioned in the beginning, um, she's that musical score is just so calming and soothing. We see the police um, coming. I want to know how the police, why did they go unless they saw, I mean, like, is where that sign is, that's a good a distance away from the main road there, Sampon Road. So it's like, why are they there? That's right. like the one pothole, but... Hey, it's a 80s slasher movie. Um, so then that's when we see Jason come out of the lake. She Alice wakes up uh, in hysterics at the hospital. Um, oh, maybe they came back to look for Ralph again. Eh, maybe. That's a good. Okay, I'll give you that. Because it was only one car. It's not like they sent the the whole brigade, the whole right. fucking patrol in. Oh, that was probably the whole police force. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, so. Um... All right, so then we find out that they didn't find any body of a boy, and you know she says, "Then he's still there." And then we have the leg roll, and then it just goes into the ending credits. So uh, distribution. So there was actually a bidding war over distribution rights to the film ensued in 1980 between Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and United Artists. Paramount executive Frank Mancuso Sr. recalled, the minute we saw Friday the 13th, we knew we had a hit. Paramount ultimately purchased domestic distribution rights for Friday the 13th for $1.5 million. Based on the success of recently released horror films such as Halloween and the low budget of the film, the studio deemed it a low-risk release in terms of profitability. It was the first independent slasher film to be acquired by a major motion picture studio. Paramount spent approximately $500,000 in advertisements for the film and then an additional $500,000 when the film began performing well at the box office. A full one-sheet poster featuring a group of teenagers imposed beneath the silhouette of a knife-wielding figure was designed by artist Alex Ebel 
role to promote the film's U.S. release. Scholar Richard Noel has observed that the poster and marketing campaign presented Friday the 13th as a lighthearted and youth-oriented horror film in an attempt to draw interest from America's prime theater-going demographic of young adults and teenagers. Warner Brothers secured distribution rights to the film in international markets. So it was first released on DVD in um, October 19th, 1999. Uh, the disc sold 32,497 units. Um, the... Uh, it was also released on VHS, Laserdisc. I have this, God, what is it called? CED, which predated the Laserdisc. And it's you, it was really cool. A lot of people will buy them at um, like flea markets and they're hanging them up for like wall art. To get a player in working condition, it's costing as much as a 4K Blu ray player. And the quality is like VHS quality, but it's really cool because it looks like a big uh, scan disc, you know, and it's always double sided. It's not so basically like, you know how like when you like we get a long movie and it's two VHS. Yeah, that's kind of how it was. So you would put it in and then the thing on the inside takes the whatever it is inside and then you pull it out and then when it's time to watch the other part of the movie, you put it in, take it out flip it over, put it back in. Um, so the original release of Friday the 13th on VHS came in a clamshell box with uh, Adrian King, the scene where she's on the boat. That that goes for Buko Bucks. I would love to get my hand on that. Um, so in 2011, we got our first uncut Friday the 13th, but it just added a little bit more gore. You know, the MPA butchered all these films so i would love to see the definitive uncut but unfortunately we'll never get to see it um so in 2020 to celebrate the film's 40th anniversary shout factory released a 4k scan of the original film as well as parts two and four in a complete series box set i'm that guy that when friday 13 comes out in a new box set i buy a new one so i had the whole set um i came out like in 2020 2021 I have the individual Blu-rays, and then I have um, the steel books from one through they've done one through four now, and then I have the 4K of Friday the Thirteenth, um, because that's really much all they could do as far as putting out new content because of the lawsuit. But now that that's over and done with, you know, um, we'll get more content hopefully. Um, all right, so it did well at the box office. The critics panned it for what it was, but you know what? Money talks. The the real critics, the moviegoers, said this was a great movie. Um, all right, so this was actually pretty cool um, that I didn't know about one of these things. So I obviously I know about the novelization in 1987, seven years after the release of the motion picture, Simon Hawk produced a novelization of Friday the 13th. One of the few additions to the book was Mrs. Voorhees begging the Christie family to take her back after the loss of her son. They agreed. 
Another addition in the novel is more understanding of Mrs. Voorhees' actions. Hawk felt the character had attempted to move on when Jason died, but her psychosis got the best of her. When Steve Christie reopened the camp, Mrs. Voorhees saw it as a chance that what happened to her son could happen again. Her murders were against the counselors because she saw them all as responsible for Jason's death. The comic books. Uh, a number of scenes from the film were recreated in Friday the 13th Pamela's Tale, a two-issue comic book prequel released by Wildstorm in 2007. Um, I do have part one. It's for whatever reason, it's so hard to find part two. And the only way I can get part two is if I buy it with part one, but I'm not about to spend $70. Um, so this video game, I did not know about this video game. In 2007, Zendex released a game adaptation movie Friday the 13th for mobile phones. In the game, the player plays as Annie Phillips, but unlike in the first film, she doesn't die. One of the counselors at Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, while the staff is preparing a camp for its summer weekend, an unknown stalker begins murdering each of them. The player must discover the truth and escape the camp alive. I'm going to research that and see if it's still available. I doubt it is, but at least if I can find like a video of just like the gameplay. That's pretty cool. So there's our review of Friday the 13th. Ooh, good job, brother. Thank you. And you kept it close to an hour. I didn't think that was happening. Well, I told you I had to really water it down. <laughs> uh, my bunny says young blood here. I don't get that reference. Young blood. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. I may like Freddy more than Jason, but Jason's number two in my book. <sighs> I won't hold that against you because you're a good friend of mine, you know, so we all have. We hey, all have it could our, be third uh... and fourth and fifth, but he's number two. We all have our flaws. <laughs> But you know, Friday Thirteenth. Okay, in your opinion, what 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 movie set up the stereotype of the final girl? Was it Halloween or was it Friday Thirteenth? I think Halloween set it up, but Friday the Thirteenth made it on the map. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like we didn't yeah. really have the term. You just know there was a dan a chick that made it out, and then like all the Friday the Thirteenth movies had a final girl, and then Nightmares mm -hmm. had a final girl, and then all the Halloween. And, yeah, and pretty much if you were a male cast in a horror film, like your ass was dead. <laughs> I mean, at least Nightmare on Elm Street, we had a, a final guy. You know. Yeah, two. but there was still a girl too. So like, yeah, but she was, but she wasn't the main character but she was more badass than jesse yeah she was a fucking movie <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think friday's more known for the final girl and then halloween's more known for like the brother sister relationship even though they tried yeah. to kill it my so old she's me so old. young blood I, there's a movie called young blood Maybe she's calling herself a young blood. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, yeah, so I'm excited for Friday the 13th. I, 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 I bet you are. <laughs> Just like how you are for haunt season. Yep. Oh. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. We're heading into week five of the haunt season this weekend. Good Lord. Really? Week five already? Yeah, man. Because I'm start early. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well. It's a nine-week season, and we got to hit it as hard as we can. And then you're going to cry when it's over. For our first couple of weeks, I'm going to be okay. And then I'm going to start fucking bitching. 
But then I get to hop into a Christmas haunt, a Valentine's haunt, a St. Patty's Day haunt, and then a halfway to Halloween haunt. And then there's that long six-month wait of me just trying to find fucking content. Yeah. Speaking of content, um, do you want to do a couple more movie reviews to finish out the month and then go into like what we were talking about? Like We're going to start um, going back to some true crime and I'm going to work on the Curse of the Pharaohs. Um, yeah, so this is going to drop the 9th. The 16th, we're going to do our follow-up from your Friday the 13th and Reapers. Okay. The 23rd, okay. we were doing a Halloween-like movie. Remember? Oh, yeah, we're doing Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat the 23rd. Yeah. yeah. And then, well, I thought we were doing Trick or Treat the 30th because it's the day before Halloween. Right. So, um... so we need something the 23rd. Um, we'll think about that. Yeah. Let me write that down. Maybe we'll think of something different. But, uh, all right. Another fun episode in the books. Yeah. Guys, this has been the Horror Shed Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube. The uh, six of five of you still watching. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah, awesome. Um, we delete the live, so then it comes out as a full episode on Monday. But it's everything you just saw, so you got a yeah. sneak peek yeah. into next Monday's episode. And for those who are watching right now, um, this Thursday tomorrow night, um, the our friends over at the Whole Damn Enchilada podcast are going to have, uh, in my opinion, the Godfather of Friday Thirteen fan films. Um, a good friend of mine, Vince DeSani, he's going to be talking about Never Hike Alone 2, which is coming out Friday the 13th. And uh, I put in for a round. Night after night.